I hate to inform you, Dan, but there's been a season change, unfortunately, as of today. I feel like you've just been kind of considered, like, for the last 24 hours, you've just been on various forms of transportation. Not sure if you've noticed. I'm wearing a sweater, I'm wearing pants, I'm wearing socks after a kind of hellishly hot weekend. So I'm not saying that summer's over. I'm not saying that fall is here. Uh-huh. But I'm saying that, you know, just pr- begin preparing yourself is all okay. I'm saying. Okay. Well, I was <laughs> expecting to get back. I've just got on home, everybody. And I was expecting <laughs> it would be uh, really miserable and rainy. And actually, it's really sunny and nice. Oh, um, well, what do I know? But there ha- I have seen lots of fallen leaves. So, you know. Okay. I guess that means something. Chestnuts are forming. And now I'm shrugging. Like, that means mm. something. So, you know, what are you going to do? Oh, yeah. Sweet chestnuts. Yeah. Uh, um well um commiserations jack (laughs) seasons 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 time before you know it the beans will be back in it was only a few episodes when i took the beans out um okay we're back to it it's been a while if you can't tell we haven't done a show in what like a month something like that i don't know it's been a while i uh we warned you this was gonna happen i went back home for a little while i'm back now did I tell you? I th- well, I must have told you how my first like six days went. I'll, when I'll I was pretend. There, right? I'll pretend that I didn't hear. <laughs> okay, I appreciate. Oh that. no, yeah. Oh. I mean, yeah. Go on. It doesn't matter. <laughs> well, we got, we got there and it was like 103, uh, which in in your time is like 41, 42. So it was hot. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, it was like 102 the next day. Um, before all of that, my mom got COVID. So for the first three days, she had COVID. Uh, fourth day was fine. Fifth day, my partner got like a viral chest infection and we had to go to the American healthcare system for them to just be like, oh yeah, you're fine. That was a bill for $450 because we don't have insurance. And then the day after that, a tropical storm hit. This hasn't happened in my life. hasn't happened for a century in California where I live. Uh, and then during that tropical storm, when we were just inside waiting for the rain to stop, a magnitude five earthquake hit. So I was like my the beginning of my trip. I was just like, okay, good, eventful, excellent. Eventful. <laughs> eventful. I thought you were going to tell me about your all, all your difficulties getting through customs and uh, flying God. and yeah. Anyway. I don't even want to think about flying. I've, I've done my big flight for the year. I don't have yes. to do it again. Never again. Do? Never yeah. again. But then Ireland everything calmed down after that, and you had a nice holiday. And it was excellent. It was the lovely. The outdoors. I, th- I think I've decided that. Um, don't really know. Home, what does that concept mean? Probably the backcountry where I'm from. It's very nice. I went up there. A bunch of the roads are still closed because uh, like uh, all the roads got washed out during all the rain this uh, earlier this year. But um, where I was able to go, oh, just so beautiful. And I love it. And it's so great. Hmm. Climbed Mount Boldy, which I'd never done. Excellent, lovely time. That's so, a yeah. nice realization. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is really nice. I think I've probably always known that, but, you know, that's good. I don't know. Nice. What are you going to do? Nice. And you, uh, I believe, organized some sort of music festival, Dan? Uh, well, yes, I was. I participated in. <laughs> the organization on. of. Very <laughs> pleased that I didn't have to do anything organizational. This was my my working holiday where I didn't actually have to organize <laughs> anything or be in charge of anything or organize people or think about it or worry about anything in particular. So mm. that was nice. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. One of my homes, Dancing in the Woods. <laughs> yeah yeah did lots of that worst homes to have it was good fun yeah it was nice so yeah i've had a nice a nice uh nice little break as well yeah we both had a nice break nice break and i feel like we probably should have used that break to read something longer we read a like what 15 page lecture this week what are you gonna do i've also just noticed dan that this feels like 
you're you're missing the picture that's always behind yeah. you the like painting which is or the drawing which is like it feels like there's an episode of the simpsons or something where like the sailboat behind the couch is gone it feels off something's weird about this i don't know yeah 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 people have been in my room moving things around um, I'm gonna, I'm <laughs> you knew gonna, this was gonna happen i'm gonna show jack there's a, like, there's a big like barricade in my room no? oh wow so, oh wow <laughs> you know you know <coughs> Oh, it's fine, dear. Yeah, the picture is missing. Uh, we talked about it very vaguely a few weeks ago. Nobody's ever going to know or see what the it is. The famous picture. Yeah, it's fine. It's now yeah. an empty space on my wall. You'll have to get what a new will picture. will I fill it with? Who Ooh, leave your suggestions below. <laughs> <laughs> Next week, you'll yeah, have sorry, a picture of yes. Yeah, yeah. Sorry if it's... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry if it's disconcerting. It is a little yeah. weird. I'll say that, yeah. but, you know, I'll allow it. Yeah, you're gonna do. I think my favorite one, um, fam- favorite piece of background was when we talked to Cliff Connolly and he just had a framed um, copy of uh, the Weekly Worker behind him whilst he was talking. <laughs> wow, I completely forgot about that. That's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'll do that. Well, yeah. if, if I had a copy of the Weekly Worker as a frame, you I were thinking it. about that. You were, you were. I saw you this past <laughs> weekend, and you were like, maybe I should subscribe to the Weekly Worker. And I was like, Dan, I asked, how are you? <laughs> That's what I should do. <laughs> the kind of things I think about. Yeah, that would solve all of my problems. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. Well. <laughs> um. Well, Dan. A while ago, someone on Twitter asked someone else on Twitter what our show was like. Right? We had nothing to do with this interaction, and I only saw it after the fact. And somebody explained it as if Wallerstein was an ultra which i thought was excellent I, that made me feel so good i was like i don't know anything about wallerstein i i'm happy to be called an ultra i think that's funny oh speaking of ultras actually before i get to why i told that i did read the coming insurrection for some reason when i was home that's what i decided to pick up and read my partner was reading these like nice vacation books and i was just like you know having to like hide the cover of the book wherever i went which was very funny incredibly funny book mm-hmm. i don't know what else is there to say on it just funny funny stuff it's been, a, it's been a very long time since i've read it and um i mean i've all i've always felt the lure of the the <laughs> oh, communizer sure. you know the, the communizer within <laughs> the calling of the communizer yeah um uh yeah it's good fun yeah. it's good fun i'll say that it's good fun um anyway if wallerstein was an ultra um so this time we're actually reading wallerstein i don't remember when we we did an episode on Wallerstein a while ago. Yeah, about we World didn't Sisters actually Theory, read. It, yeah, we didn't, yeah, we did, didn't we? read Emmanuel Wallerstein for that. I don't think we read an article um, yeah. on his theories. Yeah. And people have a way, academics have a way of always telling the truth about people's theories. So if you want to know what somebody actually said, just read what somebody else said about them. Yeah. Somebody that you don't know anything about them, and I'm sure it'll be fine. So, you know, how much fake information yeah, I mean, could there have yeah. been in that? We should just read Robert Brenner's opinion of Emmanuel Wallerstein. Yeah. I'm sure, you know, there you go. Does Lennon have an opinion on Wallerstein? Can we somehow make some sort of time rift happen <laughs> to make that? Um, no, but I bring this up because, damn, we're actually reading Wallerstein this mm-hmm. week. This is an essay I found a while ago. It's called The Bourgeoisie as Concept in Reality. Um, I think it was a lecture that he gave at some point. I could have looked that up. I don't know, at some point during his lifetime that was later turned into an essay. Um Really easy to read because it's kind of written like, you know, to be spoken or whatever. Um, I dug it. I actually thought it was really, really cool. I w- I didn't know quite what to expect, 
this was kind of pit chosen in a like haze of like i'm getting on a plane for like 12 hours tomorrow i don't know what should we do and you're like i don't know i'm getting on like a coach for 12 hours what tomorrow what should we do and i was just like i don't know i had this sitting in the background somewhere so i was a little worried that it was just you know it was gonna just be kind of boring i thought this rocked i thought there was a lot of really good stuff in here some kind of weird stuff that we can talk about later but um now i get it i understand why people suggest wallerstein because he's someone that like understands Marx um, and was clearly very influenced by him. But it's interesting because, you know, he wouldn't necessarily call himself a Marxist, right? And definitely speaks about Marxists as like these other people. So it's good to kind of get a critique um, or at least an outside view from someone who isn't an idiot, <laughs> you know, or like a liberal or conservative or something like that, right? So ostensibly, this is all about what it means to be a bourgeois, what it means to be the bourgeoisie. And um Pretty neat. I'll send that. What'd you think? Yeah, there are some really compelling uh, uh, theories. I almost said takes <laughs> <laughs> in this essay. Yeah, I agree. It was uh, very easy to read and digest. Um, I found it um, challenging, not challenging to understand, but just challenging of some of my preconceived ideas. Um, and so I'm coming into this uh, not knowing how I feel about. Um, some aspects of the conclusion, I suppose. Um, but yeah, you're correct to say that he he's a writer who clearly understands these theories very well, but um, isn't doctrinaire in his approach. I'm not not. I don't. I mean, yeah, you're probably correct to say that he doesn't. Wouldn't maybe he doesn't call himself a Marxist, um, but. Is clear from this text at least. It's clear the sort of background context, the material upon which this text is based, is very much inspired by an understanding of capitalism that we would generally agree with, an understanding of um, class society and its sort of reality and existence, and um, uh, how essential it is to do class analysis to understand contemporary society. Um, but he's trying to update, develop new ideas, um, speak in a modern context, um, considering history as something which is evolving and expanding and ever-changing and dynamic um, in ways that we, I think, in the past have really dug when we've found it in other writers and sought to champion uh, when we talk about sort of generally what our approach is, if, if we have one. Yes, the auxiliary statements approach. Yes, which changes <laughs> each each two weeks for some reason. I don't know why. Mm. Um, absolutely, I think that's one the main thing I took from this that I really appreciated was his understanding of history as dynamic, and he's he's certainly not willing to just be like the bourgeoisie. Sure, that's the same. That's exactly the same thing that it was in the 1600s as it is right now. He's he's not content to do that. He recognizes that there are differences, and if we're really going to understand this concept of bourgeoisie and kind of lay it up against, you know, class society and kind of counterpose it to the proletariat, right, to really understand where we're going, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right, like, which he wants to do, he's like, well, we really need to understand what it actually means to be bourgeoisie, because, like, you know, now it's kind of difficult to just say, well, they own the means of production, because there are so many, like, weird little stratums of intermediary classes, and I'm not going to go full sicko and be like, well, like, do those, you know, does, does, it, does it all even mean anything anymore? Like, this isn't a postmodern take. Like, he's still very much 
understands that there is uh, a necessity to understand what it is to be bourgeoisie because he's like, it still exists. Like owners of the means of production, um, you need to, he's kind of taking Marx's guidelines of like, you know, make money off of their investments via their property and owning private property and, you know, owning um, means of production, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, versus like the proletariat who has nothing to sell but their labor and then expanding upon that. He's like, if you had a liberal be like, well, what does a bourgeoisie even mean? And they're trying to like criticize Marx's work and they'd never actually read them. They'd be like surplus value. Like, is that like, that's like money, right? Like, what does that actually mean? But he definitely understands what he's talking about. Um, and I would agree comes to some kind of weird conclusions but maybe I, I don't know. Maybe they're good conclusions. I'm definitely not going to come down and be like Emmanuel Wallerstein, the man's a fool for his conclusions. The last section, I was a little bit like, well, I didn't see this coming. I don't know if I fully agree with this at yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was kind of out of left field. Yeah, we'll get to that. Kind of was very Weberian. Uh, I'm just going to pretend like I know what that means. Yeah. But um, yeah, should we get into, I guess, why he thinks that this is an important word, I guess, bourgeoisie and understudied perhaps? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I feel like one of the things he's doing very well is like, um, just just bouncing off what you were just saying for a minute. Like, there's there's a tendency to take a kind of like sociological approach to class, and in that you see all these different kind of stratas in society. But it's kind of like once um, almost one whole, which doesn't recognize that sort of fundamental, maybe Marxist class cleavage kind of thing. And he's sort of he's he's, he's taking um, elements of that and sort of still synthesizing it with there is a truth to um, the sort of fundamental class distinction that we get in Marxism. So basically, he's sort of like merging in some ways both of those conceptions of class, and he's also taking a definition of class which seems both to be interested in the the pure economic functioning of a class relation, but then also all of the sort of like ancillary cultural elements that go into that, um, which are sort of like fundamental to historical development as well, I suppose. Um, yeah. The cultural stuff was, was not something we've approached before. Yeah. And I was a little bit uncomfortable with, I don't know if you were too. Yeah. 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 And I think maybe this is our first, um, first opportunity we might be able to talk about something like the um professional managerial class is something <gasps> which is banded around a lot isn't it in sort of like yeah. left discussions or something that we haven't ever read or talked very much about um yeah i mean that phraseology isn't used in this at all but i definitely this is this is touching on those kind of discussions um and maybe it's our first uh tentative foray into that but yeah he does um he thinks this is a really interesting, important, like historical piece of terminology. And he kind of starts the essay with a sort of like very classical description of who the bourgeoisie are, what the sort of like um, classical narrative of what their role in history has been, um, sort of explaining where they come from. Um, and sort of folded into that is a discussion of the uh, origins of capitalism and it's sort of emerging out of uh feudal society and one of the things he sort of sort of seems to make quite constant reference to is that um in various different ways particularly in the 19th century like liberals and conservatives and the sort of socialists and marxists um all seem to incorporate some idea of there having been this uh class which emerged out of the sort of like gaps and contradictions in feudal society 
and was the thing which compelled um, the transformation toward capitalism and then provided sort of the dynamic drive to the the early development of capitalism, I suppose, and sort of dictated what its uh, trends and core tenants were, I guess. Yeah, the, the what does he call him? The like protagonist of the modern world, right? And he does say that those three, you know, he calls them like the three great uh, brands of, he doesn't say sociology, but I guess of just thought, right? Conservatism, meaning like, hey, monarchism, we should go back to that. That was the only stable thing. Liberalism, you know, basically like, you know, the bourgeoisie and representative democracy or parliamentarism, I guess, at, at the very least. And then Marxists, right? Everybody is like, yeah, there's a thing called the bourgeoisie and it's really important. Conservatives are kind of like, uh, nouveau riche, goddamn bourgeoisie. Whereas liberals are like, this is us. This is good, you know? And the Marxists are obviously like, they play their role, but, you know. What <laughs> yeah, the conservatives say? are like, they're bad. The liberals are like, they're good. And the conservatives, <laughs> are, the, the Marxists are like, they're good and bad. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes they need to be helped. They were good at one, mm. one point. Yeah. Mm. It's interesting. He says that they all describe them in very similar ways these three veins of thinking. And he says they're all described by these three, you know, conservatives, liberals, and Marxists. And they're described as having like occupational qualities. And by that it's, you know, at first he says burgers and the bourgeoisie were kind of like merchants. And then later on, it kind of evolved into employers of wage labor, which is a side note. I think I'm constantly looking out for like, whenever we read anything about the origin of capitalism for like the earliest date that somebody says, and in this he's like, and they might've existed as early as the 11th century. I was like, let's go. Mm-hmm. The origin of capitalism, 1000 AD history is indeed dynamic, but other than occupational um, qualities, they also have, you know, like economic um, qualities as well, which is obviously like purely driven by the need of accumulation. And then he also says there are cultural qualities to the bourgeoisie, which is the thing that I was a little bit like, I haven't come across this and I'm slightly like, is this true? Or is this kind of just like very Eurocentric kind of silliness Um, where he says that they're, you know, they're uh, not reckless at all. They're very self-interested. They're very dour. They're very rational. I think this is kind of just coming from like Protestant work ethic stuff. You know what I mean? About like capitalism could only have happened because of the Protestant work ethic, which like, yeah, okay, dude. But I mean, you see what he's saying, right? Because it's like there are certain cultural aspects to the bourgeoisie, which whether they're ideological or whatever, like they're necessary because you're not going to be able to just act you're not going to be able to be acted upon by capital in such a way to become a successful capitalist if you aren't self-interested and if you are very reckless, right? I mean, like, I'm sure we can all think of like a reckless billionaire or whatever, but I think that he would maybe say that they're actually closer to the aristocracy than to the actual bourgeoisie. Um, and so he kind of ties all of this up by just basically saying that the bourgeoisie early on, whenever you want to pin it, that it was, you know, beginning to be formed. Um, is defined not only by capital, but also by consumption. And their consumption habits are um, mild. You know, they'll be a little bit flashy now and then, but whereas the aristocracy of, you know, Europe was like, you know, think like Barry Lyndon, think like just debauched, like, you know, fucking like mountains of gold and like, you know, servants on every corner. The bourgeoisie was very like, you know, Protestant work ethic and like kind of like, okay, well, I have a nice carriage, but other than that, everything needs to get reinvested back into the production process so I can make more money. Mm. Um, and yeah. Yeah, this this isn't the kind of like view that um, 
he says he believes i don't think this is kind of like a kind of a i'm yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna say barbarian when i don't really understand it either but like (laughs) a sort of like um an argument which is sort of saying it is well the, the sort of classical understanding is you know, under feudalism, you have the laws and you have the peasants, and then you have a small, like, free citizenry, mostly localized in the towns, who are not aristocrats. They don't have any of that sort of weight of history, the sort of family lineage. They don't own property in the same way. Um, but also, they're not um, um, serfs, you know, they're not somehow bonded to a piece of land. They're not in any ways connected or obligated to serve a lord. Um, and so they exist in this sort of like non-space within um, feudal society. I mean, it's a very sort of simplistic understanding of history as a teleological progression whereby the next stage emerges from the gaps in the previous one um, when, um, which in some ways is also very similar to the idea that um, capitalism or whatever the next stage of history is is somehow hiding lingering within its like um parent mode of production um and um, these are all things which he's critiquing or sort of seeking to move beyond um but it's very much an idea that it's the almost the characteristics of this class maybe their sort of thriftiness or their um i don't know yeah proclivity or desire to trade in a different way or behave in have engage in different kind of economic relations um that almost creates capitalism right it's because of this class of person uh, and the how the way they behave that brings this mode of production um into into existence which is i mean in some ways it's a it's a there's probably a sort of uh a materialist version of that argument, but then you could have a very kind of like um, non-materialist one as well, I suppose. Um, he's, yeah, he's getting close to like a really dialectical, I think, understanding of um, of the transition because he is, you know, like I said earlier, he's totally happy to just be like, oh yeah, there were burgers like as early as 1000 AD in certain parts of Europe. And if you believe that they're proto-capitalists, then like, yeah, this took a really long time for capitalism to come about. And so you do kind of get this little bit of an understanding, which I always really appreciate a kind of like, you know, where you're able to see, and not, I don't mean this in a teleological way, but like you are able to see seeds of the next mode of production and kind of like even maybe like pockets of one type of a mode of production as existing under a different one. And, you know, we haven't read the absolute estate book yet. We'll get to that one eventually. But I would imagine there's kind of an argument in there somewhere where it's like, well, you know, things could have gone a different way. Maybe they couldn't have. Or maybe that's Ellen Mixon's wood. She's the one that says that maybe things could have gone a different way. But he's basically just pointing out that history, you know, it takes a while. And I don't know. He is trying to do a dialectical thing here, I think. I kind of have begun to think of him as like the Wario to Bookchin's Luigi and a like kind of like dialectical understanding of things. He's much mm-hmm. more like kind of on it, right? Mm-hmm. And much more academic. But yeah. yeah. But he, he does have a really interesting critique. He makes a really interesting point anyway, one that I was very excited by, where he says, so much is written about the development of the working class, both inside of capitalist society, but also um in the transition and he says like he makes reference to uh, E.P. E. Thompson's book you know the 
origins of the English working class. And he says, but nobody's ever written that book, the origins of the bourgeoisie, the origins of the ruling class. And likewise, nobody um, has, has, has talked about the development of the bourgeoisie. Well, this is what he's saying. I don't know whether this is true, but he's claiming that nobody's really talked about the development of the bourgeoisie under capitalism. And rather, he critiques historians for saying that the the proletariat has a sort of like an origin um, and continues to develop through history. But for some reason, there's this idea that the, the bourgeoisie almost sort of sprung into existence and has characteristics which are transhistorical, at least in the ta- at least in the history of capitalism. You know, they have their 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 nature hasn't developed and changed at all. And what he does go on to do is sort of explain how he thinks that the nature of the bourgeoisie has developed over those sort of 200 years, 250 years since the sort of the real or their real emergence into history, I guess. Mm. Yeah. He, what does he say? He's like, you know, we're just supposed to expect or to believe that the bourgeoisie sprung like fully formed, you know, like Athena from the head of Zeus. I liked that. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh yeah, yeah I guess yeah. you're right. Like, I don't know. Sometimes when you think about history, it's easy to imagine like, you know, even when you're reading like the Ellen Meekson's Woodbook or Brenneris stuff, you know, when they're talking about uh, these proto-capitalists, either in the English countryside or in towns or whatever. It's easy to just in your mind's eye be like, imagine an industrialist in like 19th century Britain, you know what I mean? And be like, oh yeah, they were always the same. The bourgeoisie was just always the same class and they were always the same, you know, people. Um, so then from here, he he goes into talking about um, kind of the point of the whole essay, I suppose, which is to talk about how he believes that maybe there is a tendency towards... I don't know. It's it's hard to say exactly what the tendency is. He he begins by saying, bringing up this con this uh, idea of the arist- aristocratization of the bourgeoisie, mm-hmm. right? Which is a really cool, I think, idea. Well, cool. It's an interesting idea, right? Which is basically that the bourgeoisie, in certain circumstances and certain types of capitalists, tend to want to act more like the aristocracy than how they should. Right. And their world historical mission to build up the to socialize production and to build up the means of production so that we can fucking get socialism. Right. That's their mission. And oftentimes mm-hmm. he's like, well, OK, but if you believe that teleological Marxist thought you're when if you actually try and study history, you're going to come up against a wall because oftentimes the bourgeoisie does not act in its class self-interest. Sometimes individual capitalists act in their own self-interest. And that means becoming more like an aristocrat. And what he means by more of an aristocrat kind of has several meanings, but to compare it to, he says that that's aristocratic, aristocratization, fucking Christ, of the bourgeoisie is a phrase that you often get in histories talking about the 16th and through 18th centuries, capitalist then, right? Or at least bourgeoisie then. When you get to the 20th century, people stop using that phrase and they start saying betrayal of their historical role, right? Mm. So it's kind of a way to say, you know, certain capitalists have gone on to not fully reinvest their profits into production like they should, like all good capitalist Protestants should. And instead, they fritter it away on, you know, luxuries or they find a rent to sit on, just a fat fucking rent. And they just kick their feet up and they go, ah, they're not productive anymore. And the kind of first example he gives of this is from a book. Was it called Buddenbrooks or something? Thomas Mann, an old book, 
raised like the typical path of one of these old money families is you have this like pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, like, you know, think of the typical American dream bullshit story about like, you know, somebody that came over from Italy and then they started like, okay, I'm going to be a bit stereotypical here, started a pizza shop in Brooklyn. And then that went on to become the biggest pizza shop ever. And then their son was the CEO and then their kids were kind of like layabouts. And then his great grandkids just kind of sat around and did nothing and just fritter away their wealth on like planes and fucking like, I don't know, swimming pools or some bullshit. That's kind of what he means by the aristocratization of the bourgeoisie. And it's something worth noting because it's like, yeah, if we want to talk about, you know, getting to socialism, a solid understanding of class and how classes act and what their self-interests actually are is important to understand. And if the bourgeoisie is so important in getting socialism, why isn't it doing the thing, Dan? Why isn't it doing the thing? To be clear, I wouldn't do the thing either. I'd just kind of chill. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense. <laughs> In some ways, I was thinking. I, so, I wasn't. It wasn't entirely clear to me um, what what um, mechanism he was saying was happening here. Well, basically, what I was expecting him to come onto was some kind of discussion of formal and real subsumption. It sort of feels like there's some there's, there's a kind of formal and real thing going on on the part of the bourgeoisie where they start to mimic in some ways the characteristics of the aristocracy um i don't know whether there's any point to that or not but like it's definitely the case that like they uh sort of like got manor houses and they became very conspicuous in their consumption and didn't sort of hold to this pure um bourgeois ethos of uh uh reinvestment as you say i guess uh, it it seems a... like it seems like there have been bourgeoisie since the beginning who have done this, though. You know what I mean? Like, obviously, percentage wise, it's not like everybody was doing it back then. Otherwise, we wouldn't have gotten like the modern world. There was obviously more and more. He says the percentage of the population that is bourgeois has gone up um, mm-hmm. relatively and obviously absolutely since early days. But yeah, I don't know. It seems like it's been going on for a long time, I, I, at least. Yeah, I, I'd say what it was that actually made me think of formal and real assumption. There's a section in this when he talks about the sort of like um, 19th century Victorian factory owner who has a kind of like um, paternalistic relationship to the people who work in his factory and builds his kind of community so that all of his workers live nearby kind of thing. Um, and there's a kind of mimicking of the the lord and the serf um, arrangement in a re- very kind of real geographical sense, um, and it was it was that that made me think about formal assumption really in the sense of like, um, is the capitalist here mimicking the structure of the um, feudal class relationship to kind of replace it in some way in its new in, clearly with a new economic functioning, but in a sort of form which is um, familiar in some ways. And I was expecting him to say. That, that um and he didn't he he almost turned that into a, an example of this um aristocratization happening that was my reading anyway i thought he was he was using that example as an example of the that process when really it seemed like it was something else to 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 my reading anyway yeah it's almost it's almost like this needed i'm sure he's written i would hope he's written about this more cuz it does seem like it needs to be expanded on a bit it almost seems like other up until when he starts talking about the modern times and the modern bourgeoisie, it's almost you kind of get a sense of like, it's just a couple of bad eggs doing the aristocratization thing and a couple of bad families. And like, he's basically saying that old money breeds this kind of, you know, delinquent behavior of, 
not doing what you should, which is accumulation at all costs. What are you doing? Sitting by the infinity pool? Give me a fucking break. You can't be doing that. You got to be out there investing, Dan. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like a really bad motivational speech. Yeah. It's the it's the classic con- complaint against any third or fourth generation. Like, mm. I don't know. People, um, I, I, for some reason, I can only think of like the Kennedys, you know, or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, their their wealth all came from noble. <laughs> yeah, and bootlegging, which is all you know. That's accumulation, Dan. That's what we're talking about. <laughs> Kennedy's dad was an accumulator. <laughs> um, he does have some really scathing things to say about the notion of the the failure of the bourgeoisie to fulfill its historical role. Kind yeah, of thing. fools. Particularly, it's he's particularly scathing of um, sort of Marxist-Leninists and the the what underpinned a certain uh, Marxist strategy during the sort of the Third International post the nineteen seventeen revolution of like oh even before actually of like we will aid the bourgeoisie to power and then they'll do the work of issue sort of like initiating the revolution and our work is to be done later on kind of thing so there's this sort of like scapegoat for um socialist and marxist parties that are like now isn't our time later in history will sort of like rise to the fore kind of thing um and he he makes this sort of like uh joking point that the vast majority of bourgeoisie sort of failed to fail to fulfill their historical role kind of thing like there aren't very many that followed the the british example um, and so, yeah, maybe what you're taking to be the historical, preordained historical role of the bourgeoisie is actually uh, not it at all. And their failure is actually, well, what, what he comes back on is maybe their failure is actually the historical trend that we should be looking at and imagining to be their um, class imperative, I suppose. Yeah, it, it's that it, that definitely takes form, he says, especially in kind of like developing countries where there, you know, like where we would go on to see developmental regimes or even like where there were failed socialist revolutions. He talks a lot about, he just says Africa. I would imagine it means like sub Saharan Africa, um, where there'll be a bourgeois revolution, quote unquote. And then this just kind of leads to a new class of like, what does he call them? Like the administrative bourgeoisie. That's where you want to be, where they just kind of like sit on a weird form of like clout rent and just kind of hang out and they have economic power and they obviously have a uh, political power, but they're not really like developing things as they should. Mm -hmm. And then everybody throws up their hands in the socialist side and is like, why do we support these people? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's just like, you know, I thought we were supposed to get socialism right after this. At a certain point, it is like, how much more does the bourgeoisie need to do? You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, yeah. especially now. I don't know when this was written, but it's like, I don't know. I how much more they got to do? One of the first footnotes is like. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. that sounds about right. Speaking of footnotes, did you see who got a mention in here? Uh, no, tell me. Ralph Miliband. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, I was just about, to, well, I wasn't quite about to come on to that, but um, what I was going to say was like, what, what he's doing in the middle sections of this essay is sort of poking holes in the narrative that he puts forward in the first half, right? The first section, right? The first section, he gives the classical definition of what the bourgeois class is and the historical role they're supposed to have fulfilled. And then he says, well, no, actually, there's this aristocratization process that happens. And there's this sort of the historical failure. Um, and then the third point that he comes on to, which is probably really pertinent to um, the argument he goes on to make, um, is the idea that there, there has been in history 
in the history of the 20th century, I suppose, this break between um, being the owner of a capital, a piece, like a factory or what have you, and being the person that's directly in control of the everyday running of that um, that that plant kind of thing. There's been a transition to being a stockholder or ho- holding shares um, and the creation of a class of person who d- does the everyday control of the productive process itself. And that, here he's talking about the sort of like development of the manager, I suppose. Um, and he also talks about this sort of historical process that he says has happened, which has previously been called the a process of en bourgeoisiement where like proletarians become more bourgeois in their class character. Um, now this is when we get into this murky territory of like uh, cultural versus um, economic class position, I suppose. Um, but he is, he is doing an interesting, interesting work of like um, very succinctly descri- describing some of the developments in class relations that have led us to the point now in the 21st century where it's a lot more murky and we 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 potentially have new classes to discuss the 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 classical marxist claim that capitalism is um simplifying the class relation and making it more bare and more obvious um it's is uh, he is heavily problematizing that claim i suppose yeah, but also also like I I totally agree and I do think that more work needs to be done cuz like, you know, ownership of means of production on one hand and owning nothing but your own labor. That's where you that's kind of that's like, yeah, obviously that's true. Those are the class dividing lines in society. That I hate to say it though, but if you actually want to do politics now, that's where you begin because there's a lot more other stuff built on top of that. And you're right. When he started going into this new middle class stuff, I was a little bit like, hmm, what's he talking about? Where, where's this going? But it's funny because he does, you know, he does come out and say these managers or whatever, these directors, the people who have control, not ownership, but control over these enterprises um, who are making like a lot of the actual day to day decisions about the enterprises themselves, which, you know, it's incredibly funny thinking about the aristocratic bourgeoisie at the top, just sitting there drinking Mai Tais by the pool doing nothing. But like, I don't know. It's it's interesting. And he do, he does recognize that even though he's like this close to being like, it's a new class. It's, you know, it's, it's, I want to say it, it's a new class, this new middle class. He does recognize that they still are closer to proletarians in that they are still living off of the wage. They're living off of selling their labor. And when he said that, I was like, oh, phew, <laughs> thank God. But at the end of the day, like that is still a pretty big difference. And it's obviously not enough for me to want to be like it's its own class because i do still think that you need to solely define class based on this like base right and then you can kind of go into like little micro classes or whatever but um yeah it's also important to not just be like a jerk and just be like well actually in the communist manifesto it says that there's a teleological thing happening with class i think that people take the line in the communist manifesto about you know more and more we're splitting up into two hostile camps uh, way too literally. And I think that it's the one thing people have read of Marx. And so they go, no, that's what Marx thought. But it's like, that was a political document. It wasn't like this document that Marx spent his life, you know, writing to be like, this is the truth. Like, obviously he put a lot of work into it, him and Engels, but it's like, that was written for a popular audience. And it's like, like in Capital, he talks about how there's 
potentially a new strata of the working class evolving. There's the section, it's either in the, it's, fuck, it's the whole section where he's talking about time wages versus peace wages. He goes into saying like, hey, and actually there's kind of a new strata of the working class that is formed that basically, you know, kind of make their living by whipping other members of the working class into shape, right? They're like factory supervisors. And it's like, okay, yeah. It's like, of course, you don't have to like clutch your pearls every time somebody is like a new class in my Marxism. It's like, we don't necessarily have to call it a class because I think that owners, your relationship to the means of production is the most important thing. But um, yeah, it also fucking cracked me up when he was like, but also hedonistically, they're a little bit aristocratic. <laughs> it's like, wow, you're right. Because like all of my supervisors and managers all have fucking beer guts and they're just like sickos. So, you know, what are you going to do? I I have often thought about this, especially when I worked in retail, the division of, you know, when you work somewhere and sometimes they're like your boss, especially when they're trying to get you to work for free at the beginning or end of a shift, they're like, you know, we're a family. We're all just a big family here. I think the dividing line can be easily found by who actually has to believe that bullshit and who is just like, fuck off, give me a break. I'm not working here for free because it's like. I remember when I worked in retail, the managers of the store of like a big chain were like, you know, they would constantly go past their salary hours. And, you know, I remember one of them used to like sleep on the shop floor because there was so much shit to do before the next day during like busy seasons. And like, Prol isn't going to do that. Like just your typical Prol isn't going to do that because they're like, "Eh, fuck it. But they're getting bribed enough with like, I don't know, shares or a better salary or better benefits that you know they're they're okay with it and so there is a bit of a dividing line again it's important if you're trying to do politics but if you're solely doing sociology you can be like well but is it its own class i don't know it depends on what you mean by class yeah i didn't mean to um argue for oh maybe i did but anyway i didn't intend to um uh argue for a sort of simplified understanding of marx's class analysis i think maybe he is here though Mm. um and I think although you're de- you're definitely right to say that what he says in this section, at least in the middle, is that, but these people are still wage workers. Um, but I think later on in this, he sort of starts to talk about this class of person almost analogously with the bourgeoisie. Um, mm. And I think there is a vagueness for him. Um, and maybe that's fair, right? I don't know. Um but, well, yeah, I think I, I think when when we're talking about when we live in a world where politics is defined in the bourgeois way of like let's just say a parliamentary democracy, right? And then it then these little microclasses do really become important because people's ideologies will change and they won't act in their class interest. Heavy air quotes, right? And mm-hmm. I think this is why he's trying to frame it as a bourgeoisification of a certain strata of the proles and an aristocratization of a certain sector of the bourgeoisie, right? Because he's like, well, this is how you get some sicko people, some sicko proles going against their interest and how you get some sicko bourgeoisie going against their class interest, but like going for it in their own personal interest, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What did you make of the, um, the psychologic stuff of capital? is like the logic and then the psychologic um i i i didn't take very much away from it at all <laughs> if i'm totally honest um i mean it is it is i guess it is vitally important to at least um 
make an effort to bear in mind that there is a human psychology that's um, underlying uh, particular behaviours, I suppose. Um, yeah. And yeah of, why, don't you, why don't you tell me what you thought if you hadn't? I, I, yeah, I don't know. Not too much. You can tell he kind of criticizes Weber at the beginning of this. And then he's kind of he brings up Weber here and is kind of like, mm, but was he right or was he wrong? Who's to say? He does a lot of like, I don't know. I'm just a little guy. How should I? Mm-hmm. Like he'll bring up a really controversial topic and then be like, oh, but I don't know. Um, I think the purpose that I well, the purpose, whatever, what I took away from it was. When you are trying to do an analysis similar to Marx's, you much like when you're talking about labor, you need to have your kind of goggles on to talk about the big picture, abstract social labor, and to talk about the little picture, concrete labor, the little guy just sweeping the floor or whatever, right? And I think it's a similar thing when it comes to class analysis, because the the bourgeoisie's interest as a class is its world historical mission. You could say in the emergent totality of the class, yeah, accumulation is what the class's interest is. It isn't having a fail son who's going to spend it all on like Candy Crush or something like that, right? Like, but when you talk about individual specific capitalists, yeah, you're going to see some aristocratization. Now, where it gets a little murky for me is that I don't know if he's actually saying that this is a tendency that's growing, when he starts talking about rents, I think it's pretty clear that it is growing because it se- it gets a little weird at the end where he's like, oh, so if you have a rent, then you're an aristocrat and also monopolies rent. So all the bourgeoisie are aristocrats. <laughs> it's yeah. like, wait, <laughs> that feels a little bit like I see what he's saying, but it feels a little bit like twisting definitions there. But this, yeah, I don't know. The, psych- the psychology stuff is important in that it's like, you know. Marx said this. Marx was like, when you're doing the class struggle, you'll probably have to come across and make alliances with some segments of the bourgeoisie. This is just how it happens. Individual people will have different interests than their class. We see it with proles. We see it with the bourgeoisie. In some aspect, I'm sure you saw it with aristocrats, right? So, I don't know. It's nuance, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think um, I think we should maybe come on to the, the rent stuff a little bit because I think it it does become the fundamental element of his argument, I suppose. Um, he, I, I think, I, as I understand it, there's sort of like thrust of the argument he's making is that like the most important thing for capitalism and for capitalists is the process of accumulation. Um, and I think he seems to imply that in the at the end of the day, having a rent and extracting being a rentier um is actually the most efficient way to accumulate it's the best way to um improve your rate of profit is the sort of general phraseology that he uses um and um, yeah i think i think it's the best way to squeeze a disproportionate amount of surplus value out of a given commodity chain is to find a rent to sit on yeah yeah and and oh. by extension of that, um, uh, to monopolize the, the uh, uh, control of a commodity chain as well. Yeah, and that that part made me a little bit like, because you know he comes out and he's like, okay, the bourge- all bourgeoisie want a rent. They seek a rent in that they're, if nothing else, seeking 
a monopoly and monopolies rent, right? Which is true, like I guess, or like if you're selling something above its value, then anything above its actual value in terms of how it gets translated into price, I guess you would call that a rent, right? And so if you have a monopoly, then yeah, you're extracting a rent out of the market. Um, Still though, the jump to being like, that's aristocratic behavior, I think is kind of funny. Uh And it's like, okay, <laughs> it's like I guess it yeah. seems like. But I think, but I think it's it's only it's not aristocratic behavior in the sense that it's backward looking. I think maybe maybe the argument he's making is it's aristocratic behavior in the sense that it's not classically bourgeois behavior. It's more complicated than um, a simple overcoming of one particular set of class behaviors with another set of class behaviors that belong to a completely independent and separate class. Um, so maybe what he's doing is sort of just complicating the teleological nature of some other people's arguments rather than um, saying that we haven't properly left feudalism. I mean, I <laughs> no, yeah, sure. say that that's not what you're implying. Sure. Kind of thing, but like, I think, I think, yeah, I think for me though, I kind of view that and monopolies as whoops and monopolies as well as an aberration in class behavior. Uh-huh. And I get what I will say, though, is I do understand what he's saying about, yes, every every capitalist would want a monopoly and would want a rent to sit on. 100% that's true. But I think that other than like maybe some circumstances, how how stable are monopolies without political protection? And he gets into that. He's well, basically yeah. like rents don't exist without political protections. But it's like it's hard to say that this is a trend when it's like, yeah, I think that a Marxist economic position on monopolies is that they are not sustainable over the long term and that they can't be because there's always going to be competition and there's going to be somebody that undercuts you somewhere, right? Unless you have that political protection, in which case he is saying rent is entirely political. And the kind of funny thing about rents is that they have this cyclical behavior where like somebody will wind up losing their rent, then somebody else will get it. Because, you know, people are constantly in competition with them trying to undercut the source of their rent or whatever so that they can then get it. And then it just kind of flips back and forth. Um, So I I don't know. I'm interested in like, is this a tendency of the class? Is this an aberration? I think it. Yeah, it's like a lingerie thing. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's maybe it's incorrect to say that it's a tendency of the of a class psychology, I guess, if that is what that is kind of what he's saying right there. um, What? He's saying it's as, it is as a result of a comprehensible interest, class interest, um, that there is this process that he's calling aristocratization or whatever. But maybe he's, I mean, the the way I've come to think about the development toward um, increased um, rentier, rentier, an increase in the sort of like rentier nature of the economy and the monopolization of the economy, which I think is a trend that he's identified, which has been borne out, right? Like, um, particularly in the space of like um, the big like tech giant monopolies now. Um, but that but that does sort of like, they do, those tech monopolies do intersect real, the real economy, right? Like, um just because Amazon is a tech company, what they do is distribution, right? And they've monopolized distribution um, or so many other things. Um, the way I, I've come to think about it is that that happens as a result of um, the declining rate of profit, right? Like um, the only way to be a profitable company now is to monopolize 
um as he says in this like a commodity stream like the entire the entirety of a commodity stream um because if if i almost said normal like what he's trying what in some ways what he's trying to get make us get away from is almost thinking that there, there is a normal um form of capitalism there is a normal form of um bourgeois behavior i suppose um and he's saying that the that it's a much more historical phenomena the behavior of the bourgeoisie the nature of capitalism um is a historical phenomenon. He doesn't really talk about the declining rate of profit, but if there is a process whereby profits are declining over time, and one of the ways that they've learned that capitalists capitalism has learned to escape that um, secular, uh, secular trend um, is to um, find ways to create and then protect through, as you say, like state um, state behavior find ways to protect those monopolies um that maybe it is a process that's happening and it is a historical development of the necessity uh for capitalism to survive it has to move into that kind of mode um so i think he's identifying something that in subsequent years after this was written has kind of been borne out or that's this that at least that's the that's what i that's the analysis that i think i've been exposed to that i don't know no, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. I think that this could probably definitely do with um, a modern update as well as applying the idea of the falling rate of profit to it um, and just the general nature of capitalist economy because kind of what he's trying to do here is say that, hey, he comes out at the end and he's like, even though I've said all of this, the bourgeoisie is still the main protagonist of capitalism. Duh. It's, it's in the name, folks. Capitalism. Um, but he also says – that they're political actors just as much as economic actors, right? So, and because you need political protections for rents, you know, yeah, I, I, I think you're right. Um, well, I really appreciated when he was just like, listen, capitalism is nothing, can be defined as nothing else other than accumulation at all costs and just a continuing cycle of accumulation. I appreciated that because he was like, you know, all these other things, maybe they're just ancillary, ancillary but um, still important to understand. And I think that if we kind of – either if we use historical hindsight to pro to project the industrialist of, you know, I don't know, Bolton in the 19th century onto like 16th century origins of capitalism or if we kind of like project, you know, the behavior of burgers onto like, you know, billionaires now, yeah, you're going to run into some inconsistencies. Um if you wanted to be vulgar about it, I guess it's like a base and superstructure thing about trying to weed your way through the superstructure to really understand the base because, you know, content and form, form's, form's always going to change. It's going to constantly change. And that always trips up Marxists because they're like, wait a minute, it was supposed to look like this thing a hundred years ago, right? That's, you know, one of the reasons that Marxists are still clinging on to political strategies from a hundred years ago. But, you know, what are you going to do? The last section, should we talk about the last section really quick? Because this is where it tripped me up. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I don't get it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this just seemed like it's, it's, it's titled human capital. And all I'll say is it just seems like he out of the blue is just like, oh yeah. So opportunity hoarding, you know, there you go. That's a yeah. thing, huh? <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't like the political implications of what he was saying really. Um, and anyway, he, um, just just in the sort of section before that he sort of starts to imply that 
what going back to what we were saying at the beginning where he does kind of recognize the essential class nature of the capitalist mode of production right what he is saying okay there is an economic surplus that's being created by the working class and the returns from that economic surplus don't necessarily go to the working class they're um shaved off by some by a bourgeois class i suppose by the bourgeoisie he's saying that that doesn't really take the classical form of a factory owner and a sort of like victorian urchin kind of thing um but he, he, he but rather what the, the sort of like the nate the class society that he's describing toward the end of this piece seems to compose primarily proletarian wage earners who are being exploited and a kind of bourgeois wage earner who is is benefiting and reaping the surplus so there is still that sort of class division um but that sort of like that bourgeois class that 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 representative of the new bourgeois class is both a wage earner and also somebody who's directly controlling uh capital without kind of earning it uh, not earning it owning it um and he just seems he seems to be sort of implying that there's a sort of been this destruction of um a sort of classical representative of the bourgeoisie who owns capital um which seems quite an extreme conclusion to have ended up with i don't know i don't know whether that was your reading whether that seems to be what he's yeah. implying or i think i think my my reading my reading was him talking about the way in which the bourgeoisified proles st- reproduce bourgeoisified proles if that makes sense because mm-hmm. he, he talks he he brings up education and he's like this is the main struggle of the main site of the class struggle and it's like whoa what where were you giving this speech a university i would imagine yeah. <laughs> because he because he basically says that because the new middle class can't like give a kind of past like a rent to mm-hmm. uh to its next generation, much like an aristocratized bourgeoisie can. I mean, if, right? I feel like he really didn't foresee um, the grotesque levels of <laughs> um, the grotesque increase in the rentier population of countries like the UK. Like, mm. what, I'm, what I'm speaking to here is there is a generation who owns lots of property and rents it, like the. Who, who are members of the bourgeois class who have sort of like hoovered up all of the housing stock and then rent it back to people kind of thing, mm. which is a process a more recent process um which I, that's what i was thinking about all the way through this where he was saying that like the new bourgeoisie isn't capable of um uh accumulating property that they can rent out um yeah well then you just have to wait in for some ways in the language that he's presenting that is what's happened but mm. yeah, i don't know yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. But the educational stuff is that because yeah. because that the the kind of what he calls the new middle class, but it is the kind of bourgeoisified, even though they're not actually bourgeois, but the bourgeoisified culturally um, middle class, like because they can't give a rent to their kids or something like that most of the time, even though they kind of sit in this weird kind of quasi rent area because they have this like control over certain parts of the economy. 
They can't bequeath that because we live in a meritocracy. Thanks a lot. The conservative philosopher Assad coming to bourgeois mm-hmm. state can't work with the bourgeois society. Because they can't do that, they have to kind of like save a special space in privileged education centers for their kids. Because he's basically like, you know, we made fun of Althusser for saying this in the past, but he's like, what is a school if not a place to make you sit quietly for eight hours and to train you to control other proles? And everyone goes, wow, that's so deep. Um, but it is true to a certain extent. It's like who comes out of universities if they if they aren't like me and they did a useful degree, what do they come out of universities doing, right? They come out of universities as data scientists to come up with ways to improve guard labor or they come out as like business sickos. I don't know what business people go on to do, presumably business of some kind. They always seem to do well for themselves. So they always are able to like this is the way that the new middle class bequeaths, you know, I don't know, a good life or at least a certain they reserve a certain segment of their class for their kids is by like reserving the space in privileged education centers, which is obviously true. Right. It's like how many fail sons have gotten accepted into Stanford, you know what I mean, or into Yale. Yale is literally just fail sons as far as I can tell. Um, So, you know. It, it's interesting. It is interesting. And I mean, again, this is very like concrete analysis. If you want to do political work, this is very necessary. Um, but yeah, it's kind of funny. I, I do think it's hilarious when he brings up the in the middle of this, the conservative thinkers who are like in England, you know, during the 19th century, there was a guy who was like, thank God England still has a queen because otherwise the bourgeoisie would get way out of control and the whole country would fall apart because if things ever got like truly secularized, it would all fall apart. Whereas, you know, there's this other conservative guy in Austria who was like, the bourgeoisie have taken control. The world is ending, even though they like respect quote unquote free market ideas. Um, he kind of winds up being like, they kind of had a point, like bourgeois meritocracy kind of shoots itself in the foot, you know what I mean? Or at least encourages this kind of like rentier behavior. Um, but yeah, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's as you say, like an opportunity hoarding description of um, uh, the class divide, I guess. Um, he also seems to have quite a like, uh, almost like a positive well, if if you if you have a left wing politics, he seems to have quite a positive and rosy outlook on what this human uh, capital, this definition of the class relation, which is defined by having or not having human capital, by which he means having or not having a good education and a way into being a member of the um, professional managerial class, I suppose. Um, and he sort of implies that this appears to everybody as being incredibly arbitrary. Um, We are ruled by the smart people because they were able to get the education kind of thing. And he seems to be implying that um, there there are sort of like political dividends to be reaped by a left in the political context of uh, living in a country where that's so self-evidently the case to the lower classes kind of thing, to the working class. Um, I don't know how you felt about that sort of uh, thesis. I, w- I was a bit unsure. Um, I think I feel more comfortable with the argument you were making before of um, uh, the po- the political worthwhileness of... Uh, telling people that um, 
well, t- talking about like not being a wage earner and having nothing else but your wage kind of thing. And that nature of the class divide being one which is politically advantageous. And almost this one, he, here he seems to be advocating um, a kind of bourgeois ideology, which I think actually works quite well on people, which is this: there, there isn't a fundamental class decide. It's actually just a sort of meritocratic spectrum and you fall on a different level on it. And these people have clearly worked very hard to get the education that they have. So they deserve to be paid a little bit more. Um, yeah, I don't know whether you have any thoughts. Yeah, I'm not sure it's as useful as he thinks it is. I think it's. I mean, he doesn't. He doesn't come out and say it's useful. He comes out and says it is happening. The 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 working class is realizing how silly this is. Mm-hmm. And on one hand, I agree with him because what is more believable that everybody who's in charge is smarter than you, even though you can just go on Twitter and be like, well, that's clearly not the case, mm-hmm. or that people are in charge because. God put them in charge, Dan, and don't question God. <laughs> I've said this before, like in in English towns, if you just lived in like a mud thatched hut in like the 1200s and then you came into town and you saw a fucking cathedral, you'd be like, yeah, God's real. Okay, God's real. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, that person is in charge because God put them in charge. Yeah, okay, that's fair. That's, you know, I understand that. Um, I, you know, I understand that. And I think that people are really beginning to realize that, wait a minute, we've been told that this is a meritocracy. It's clearly not. People are clearly just sitting on rents. And if you're born with rich parents, it's pretty easy to like have it made, right? But on the other hand, that is just ideology. You know what I mean? And he's kind of putting the cart before the horse a little bit. And again, I think this is where you're right, like more of an economic, uh, more of an analysis of the economic underpinnings of why these things are taking place would really behoove this piece. Um, Because I think that like, yeah, ideology at the end of the day is kind of an outgrowth of existing trends in the like material reality of like political economy. You know what I mean? And while I do think that ideology is always obviously going to be politically useful because politics and ideology, they go hand in hand. um, Yeah, it's, it's, you know, why is this happening is I guess the question that I would ask. I would say that the wheels aren't coming off the bus because people woke up one day and are like, oh, right, Elon Musk is a fucking idiot. Jeff Bezos is a sicko. You know what I mean? Like the wheels are coming off the bus because accumulation is slowing down and the working class is uh, getting less and less. So mm-hmm. hmm. what are you going to do? This, um, this discussion of the like um, – the realization that people are going to make of the unfairness of the system and a sort of general skepticism to this class of person that rules over us um all it really made me think of was like the suspicion of experts to but also it made me think of just like the general language around people who voted for brexit or trump (laughs) or this kind of thing which now as we're talking makes me think well okay if this is a process that's happening you still there still needs to be a political process that captures that mood or doesn't um and so far we haven't really the left hasn't really captured the mood of hey this is really unfair and unjust and um yeah this this class system mm. needs to be overthrown it'll be interesting to see where the cleavages come about especially in terms of the working class because it's like the prole proles and the bourgeoisified proles, you know, where's that? When's that going to split? You know what I mean? Because you never see your actual boss. You never like, I don't, depends on where people work unless you work in like a mom and pop shop. But it's like, I don't know. I, the last time I worked at like a place where I actually knew my boss was when I worked at like a pub. 
Well, and even then, like it wasn't even a freehold. So like technically I didn't even know my boss, you know what I mean? So it's like the people that you see and that you fucking hate, like those oftentimes are the bourgeois-fied proles. So it's like, oh, it's going to be kind of tricky getting those people, you know, those proles on board when there's this much of attention. So, which again is why like this stuff is important. You can't just kind of fall back and be lazy on the like, you know, stereotypical view of Marxism, which is that there are two classes done. You fall into one of those camps because if you're actually trying to organize or do something with your life, then that isn't, it's not as simple. You know what I mean? Bit of personal experience here. We had a um, big all kind of local branch meeting of my union today that we've been organizing for a while. And it was to kind of like, okay, how are we as a branch going to respond to these, uh, you know, kind of like, the kind of like bullshit pay offers we've been getting and a bunch of stuff. And it was basically a way of kind of seeing if people would be interested in industrial action. Right. And usually I get quite frustrated with union stuff and I'm kind of just like, fuck me. It's just like, you know, all of the organizing, you just realize that all of this work is to just translate, you know, I'm going to sound like a bit of an asshole, but it's like to translate the spontaneous frustrations and revolutionary anger of people, which is always there into like, a language that management understands and that's kind of just like all you're doing and it gets really frustrating but i left today feeling really good and just feeling really happy and it was main i was trying to figure out why and i think it was because it was just a big complaint fest and people were just getting really angry and just like and then this asshole you know this guy and then you believe what this person said and everybody was talking about this strata of people this like you know the new middle class or the bourgeoisified proles and i think i realized Maybe the reason I do this stuff is just because I like sticking it to people. It's just cool to stick it to the man sometimes. It just felt really good. I was like, you know, one of these days, they're just going to get it stuck to them. And it's just nice. Like, I know that it's weighted in the favor of the bourgeoisie. And, you know, they're always going to, you know, really get their way no matter what we do, even if we go on strike. But maybe we can make it just a little bit more difficult for them. And I was left and I was like, that makes me feel good. (laughs) Stick it to the new middle class. That's what I'm telling people. Good. Well, that's a nice note to approach the end on. Yeah, cross-class alliances. Who needs them? I'm trying to split up actual classes. Yeah. yeah, So Wallerstein. Interesting stuff. Yeah. I don't know. What are your final kind of takeaways from? Was this useful? Uh, Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely going to um, uh, keep going back to some of these ideas and trying to work out how I feel about them. Um, It's definitely good to um it's good it's good for i've appreciated having um some of my thinking about class challenged a little bit um and obviously i really appreciate this the effort to develop historically some of these concepts about class while still keeping in place some of the sort of like uh core tenets of thinking around the exploitative nature of class relations so um I do appreciate it, and I would like to. Yeah, I think I think we've agreed that we're going to try and read some more, try and um, engage in some world systems theory thinking, and um, yeah, challenge our uh, deep seated Brennerism a little bit. You begin with Jason W. Moore, and then you read Wallerstein. Uh-huh. That's what you do. Yes. <laughs> sure. Okay, uh, you got stuff you got to do, Dan. Um, I'm tired. I'm going to make dinner. I have enjoyed podcasting with you once again. It's been yeah, nice to get back it. into it. Back yeah. at it. 
I was frothing <laughs> at the mouth there for a little while. I was like, I haven't podcasted in four weeks. <laughs> um, but yes, it's been very nice. I've enjoyed talking with you, Dan, and I'm looking forward to whatever we do next. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thanks. For, sorry for the big gap, everybody listening. And thanks for sticking out to the end of this one. It's very nice to be back with you. And likewise, Jack, it's nice to be podcasting with you again. Yeah. So see you later. We'll see everybody next time. <laughs>